Wonderful. Sweet. Well, if I don't know you, my name is Evan. I'm just one of three guys that teach up here on a regular basis. Um, no longer able to wear flip-flops when I teach. It's pretty obvious this last week why people don't live in South Dakota in the winter, but here we are. Smiles on our faces. Wonderful. So over the last three and a half months, we've been working through the book of Mark. Um, Chris just read what we're going to be looking at today, chapter 6. Um, so we're about five and a half, six chapters through it, and we're going to continue through the book of Mark, which is 16 chapters until we're done. So it's kind of a long haul. But the reason that we're doing this is so that we can walk away having a better understanding of who Jesus is, he does not change, and who his disciples were. You know, if you're at all like me and have heard, you know, a thousand sermons or more in your lifetime, it's so easy to not remember 99% of them, right? It's just how we go. Um, so what I encourage you to do whenever you listen to a sermon tonight or anytime, walk away with one piece of information, something that you can solidify in your mind and think about over the next day, two, three days that, that your mind goes there. So tonight, I'd encourage you, who is Jesus? And more for tonight, who were his disciples and what were they call, called to do? Um, you know, just to give you a little bit of context, <clears throat> where we've been in the last five chapters, uh, Jesus has just kind of hit the, the small region like a rock star, um, healing people left and right, casting out demons. Um, we just saw him quiet the storm on the sea and raise a, a little girl from the dead. Um, so it's pretty obvious that Jesus is pretty dang popular where he's been at. Um, I would say that it's almost like at a peak of his popularity. Um, tonight, you know, we're going to kind of take a lif- little different approach. Um, the different approach that people did, regardless of how much of how much power he had, they still had their ability to choose, to accept or reject. You know, here in chapter 6, um, we see that he enters his hometown. Before we get into the passage, think about people that you have watched grow up, whether they were friends of yours or a friend's kid that is now 7, 8, 9, 12 years old. Think about running into them after three or four years, and all of a sudden they're doing these miraculous events, things that are unexplainable. They're speaking with wisdom and power. How would you react to a person you've known a majority of their life that is now utterly different. High school friend that you haven't seen in 10 years walks in the door and you're like, really? Could that actually be true, what they've been saying about him? You know, we'll, we'll just go back and start with the, the verses. So we're in chapter 6, verse 1. Um, speaking of Jesus, he left that place and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So the fact that he comes with disciples shows that he is... Um, a rabbi. He's a teacher. He has power. Um, Verse 2, on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astounded. So we see that he begins his time at home um, through teaching. In Luke 4, we see a little bit more of what he talked about. Uh, Luke 4, verse 16. Wonderful. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, 
to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So imagine this individual who you haven't seen for like three or four years. You watched him grow up. He was a carpenter. He did all these things. Comes in and reads this passage from Isaiah written 700 years prior saying that it was talking about him. And then he just gives it back and goes and sits down. Right? You wonder what sort of awkwardness there was there. Was Jesus like just joking with him? What was really going on? You know, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know, at this point, he brought them to a crossroad. There was no way to deny what he was laying before them. Either I am the Messiah, the one that God said he would bring, or I am the man that you thought I was. Mary's child, Joseph's son, a carpenter. He's basically saying, today you have to choose. And we see back in Mark, we see in verse 2b that they started asking questions. They said, where did, this man, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? So they're just kind of starting to contemplate and wonder, what the heck is going on here? Is this really true? And then verse 3, we see that they choose. Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Josie? and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense. You know, to help us understand that a little bit more, a commentator put it this way. Despite his impressive words and deeds, he was too ordinary for them. The derogatory question, isn't this the carpenter, implied he is a common laborer like the rest of us. All his immediate family, mother, mother, brothers, and sisters were known to the townspeople, and they were ordinary people. The phrase Mary's son is also derogatory since a man was not described as his mother's son in a Jewish society, even if she was a widow. Otherwise, he'd be described as his father's son. So we see that they choose to reject him. And it says they took offense at him. Offense is another phrase for like anger. So they became very upset at him. You know, and Jesus doesn't back down. He he looks at them in verse 4 and says, Prophets are not without honor. It means they're honored everywhere they go, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. You know, most likely he was pointing them back to the way their ancestors treated Moses and the other prophets. You read through Exodus or Numbers, you see often Jesus is rejected. They try to get rid of him. They try to do things to him, even though he is the one bringing them God's word. The prophet Jeremiah was taken and put into the stocks at the temple, like locked hands and head. He was thrown into a pit because he was bringing them God's word. And so Jesus says, you're making a common mistake that people continually make. They look at what God is bringing and they assume it's just an ordinary man telling us things he wanted to tell us, so let's reject him. You know, if you read through um, chapter four of Luke, it shows that they go even farther. They push him up onto a cliff where where the city was built and they're about to kill him when he becomes like transparent or translucent or something and he walks directly through them. So they were to the point of taking offense that they wanted to get rid of Jesus altogether. You know, we see kind of the consequences of this. In verse 5, Jesus says, And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And Jesus was amazed at their disbelief. 
you know, um, because they refuse to believe God's authority as a man, excuse me, to believe Jesus' authority as a man of God, they refuse to receive God's redemptive power. You know, Jesus' mission was not to convince everyone of his power through the miracles he performed. Of course, Jesus, with God's power, could have performed those miracles. His mission was to show people that God was bringing about the redemption of humanity for those who were willing to trust God, even if he didn't come about the way that they thought he would. The miracles were examples of God's redemptive power. Jesus' desire was to teach people that God was the one worth trusting regardless of if it fits into people's preconceived ideas of who God should be. So when people openly reject Jesus and his message, he allowed them to have what they wanted, the ability to choose. With their choice comes the consequences. They don't get what God wanted to bring into their life. All right, so let's move a little bit to application. We got another section that we're going to be looking at a little bit more, but just to try to figure out how can this apply to us you know, 2,000, 2,100 years later. What do we do with this? You know, honestly, we're given the same choice. If you'd go back to that opening slide, we can either accept or reject Jesus. Honestly, every individual that has ever lived is given this choice, and they choose one way or the other. Even if they don't understand that they have chosen, they choose to accept or reject Jesus. And it basically comes down to two different choices you have. He is the Is he the pivot point of all human history? Is he used by God to bring about humanity's redemption to their creator? Or is he just a famous teacher that was killed for his radical approach and then turned into celebrity status due to his disciples writing false stories about him? Honestly, this is a choice we all have to make. You can say, ah, it doesn't matter. Christianity isn't for me. Well, either way, you have to make this choice because Jesus did live. We have documentation of that. And he lived the way that people say he did. So either he's one or the other. It's an extremely important question. And what's quite interesting about it is that both choices are backed with a lot of evidence. You know, I hope this doesn't get too cerebral for you guys. Um, I'm here to engage your mind right now, right? Not necessarily your heart, but I want to walk through the evidence on both sides. You know, if we decide, if people decide to deny Jesus, it's ultimately because we're founded in this age of logic and rational thought, which is beautiful. I'm so glad we live in this time period. And often it rolls to, it doesn't make sense logically, based on science, that a man can do everything that Jesus did. You guys can agree with that? No one has control over nature through simply speaking. To quiet the wind? No way. You know, we live in a time of major medical advancement, and no one is able to raise someone from the dead or heal an incurable disease. It's just not possible. You know, and then it starts to go even deeper. Why would a God make his son go through everything Jesus did in order to forgive a people who continually rejected him? You know, I'm compassionate, I'm forgiving, but there's no way I would go that far. Or even the big question, does God even really exist? Certain sciences show us that we are simply a byproduct of the evolution of cells. We live, we die, and that is it. You know, we're also very skeptical in our culture. We think the fact that his disciples had created this image of him because they can gain so much 
from his celebrity status after he was dead. So they wrote up all these false stories, spread them where they could, so that way they could gain power. You know, and even on a deeper level, our personal logic or wisdom helps us make the claim that Jesus was not who he said he was. You know, even if I do believe he was the Son of God, it's not wise or logical for me to follow all of his teachings. Does it make sense to forgive somebody who hasn't even asked for forgiveness or apologized? Is it really wise to give away that much money? It would almost be considered unwise, right? It's unsafe for me to spend time down at the mission serving people food that have made their, their lives the way they are. You know, if we st- when we stay anchored to our opinions and logic and that of our culture, there is much to support our beliefs. There really are. We can easily surround ourselves with people who think or believe the same and simply live out life from our point of view. By doing this, and this is important to understand, by doing this, we willingly disregard the power of God and deny that it has any influence on our life. If Jesus was not the Son of God, if the Bible was not true, then we make the claim that God did not want to interact with humanity. All right, so let's look at the other side, the acceptance, that he was the pivot point of all of human history. Start with, you've got to realize, science has its limits. Science has its limits. Everyone, every scientist that exists, no matter how atheistic or agnostic they may be, they have to have faith. Faith in their philosophy, their belief system, their science. So let me give you an example. The Big Bang, they, they can prove evolution takes place on small levels and they can trace that back to the idea that it must have started with the Big Bang, some random cosmic cosmos explosion but what the problem is there's a gap of like billions and billions and billions of years between what they can prove and what they say actually happened and so they simply place their faith that i believe this is what happened even though they have no way to prove it everyone has faith in what they believe whether you're a christian or an atheist you have faith number two did his disciples create these stories By looking at the historical documentation that we have of books of the Bible, they blow every other piece of ancient literature out of the water for their proof. It's unbelievable. You look at what we have that's non-biblical, there's just a few documents that are hundreds, even thousands of years from when they were originally written, and we assume that they're true. But when you start looking at the Bible, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents for the book of Mark that get all the way back to within 40 years from when the events actually happened. It's unbelievable how much heavier the evidence is for the Bible than any other piece of history that we trust. And so this means that what we see having happened, what we read about, it was written 30, 40 years after it actually happened. If it was lies, it would not have made it through to us today the way it is. You know, let's go more to our own personal experiences. Let me ask you some questions. Have you or anyone you know been miraculously healed physically? How do you explain that? Has your life or someone you know's life been dramatically changed due to an unseen outside force? Addictions removed, bitterness softened, despair shattered, a purpose given? 
just out of nowhere, just seem to wrap them up. Have you ever followed God's guidance into something that seemed to make no sense and then witnessed a cause and effect that blew your mind? Have you ever heard stories of people quitting their jobs, giving away a huge amount of money, forgiving people who wronged them in a terrible way, or telling a random person or somebody you know a really random comment that you had no clue why you were saying in it, and then have seen or heard about incredible amounts of goodness flowing out of that decision? And if we had time, I guarantee half of us in here have stories to tell that line up with that. You know, as you start going through it, as you take time to examine such a critical question, you will see that the support for the Bible being true far outweighs the support for the Bible being a bunch of fairy tales. It's not just a book of stories meant to make us feel good. It is a valid and accurate record of who we were created by and his desires to redeem us and how he did it. It is backed by our own experience and the experience of others, encountering the real and interactive God of this world who steps in and pours his goodness into our lives. You know, if we thoroughly examine the evidence and are willing to act based on what we find, we open our, our lives to experience our creator and his goodness. In the same way that the people of Jesus' hometown rejected him and didn't get to experience that, the people that opened up their lives to Jesus and the truth he was bringing got to experience God's goodness. You know, when we choose to follow our own logic and reject the truths of the Bible, then we put our lives into our own hands. We trust ourselves. Honestly, this is... A, a huge decision that we all have to make and we do make it on a regular basis. Whether it's the big question or just the fact that you answer it day to day. Either way you choose has major impacts on the way we live our life. Who you trust determines how you think and act. Hear that. Who you trust determines how you think and therefore how you act. Do I trust the God of the Bible, myself, my friends, karma, Buddha, Fox News, right? Who do I trust? Who do I allow to form my view of this world and my life and how I should live it out? Who you trust determines how you think and how you act. Please do not take my word for all of this evidence. Dig into it. It honestly is the biggest question that a person needs to answer. If you need some books to look into, people to listen to, come and talk to me. There's so much out there. We have to engage our brain. That is why God created us, to have the minds we have. It's not just to, to blindly follow what we've been told when we were growing up or the things that stir random emotions within us. It's so that we can engage and know what truly is going on. Okay, so the interesting thing about this passage is not only Jesus being rejected, but Mark continues and shows us an account that gives us a deeper lesson for those who choose to trust and follow Jesus. You know, before I read it, here's kind of the walk away. Just because we choose to trust the contents of the Bible as truth and model our lives on its principles and teachings, our lives are not guaranteed to be smooth sailing. So let's look at Mark 6, 7 through 13. Then he, speaking about Jesus 
after he left his hometown, went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they, his disciples, went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. All right, so take a moment. Remember, these are real men, just like the men in this room, right? They have emotions just like all of us, male or female. Imagine being one of these individuals. Not long after Jesus was rejected in his own hometown, tried to be pushed off a cliff, Jesus sends you out in his name as his representative to spread his message. Not only that, but he gives you authority over unclean spirits. You've been told that you have power over the demonic. Imagine somebody telling you that. On top of that, he tells you to bring no form of provision or protection except a walking stick. Instead, you are required to rely on the people you are spreading the message of repentance to. The message of repentance. Think about that. You have to stop what you're doing. Although some of them will reject you in the way that Jesus was just rejected, but they are the ones that you need to rely on. This is quite the opportunity for his disciples, right? Go on your own without any food or money to do things you have never done so you can tell people that they need to repent from their choices to reject God and his plan. Holy cow. You know, we'll, we'll get, we see that they do go out and we'll look at why. But the next 17, 16 verses, Mark, the author of this pass of this book, tells us about the death of John the Baptist. The fact that he was arrested prior to this and beheaded because he was spreading the gospel of repentance. So these men that were just asked to go and do this knew that John the Baptist was killed for doing this exact same thing. And Mark obviously includes this in here so we can learn a deeper lesson. So why such bold instruction on Jesus' side? Why did he ask his men to do this? You know, three different things from this. One, to show them that God is the one whom we trust for everything, not the people or the things around us. So do not bring any provision, any protection, because you need to trust God, not the people, not yourself, not the things in your bank account. You know, we see this in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. I'm just going to give you some verses to kind of show the other side. Jesus talking about it deeper. Therefore, do not worry, saying, we, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God, for these men going out and telling people to repent and healing the demonic and his righteousness, and all these things, the other things, the provisions, will be given to you as well. You know, the second thing, to show them that by obeying God, this does not mean your life will be easy. By obeying God, this does not mean your life will be easy. You know, Matthew 16, 24 through 25, 
Sorry, Michael, I'm going fast. You're keeping up. Then Jesus told his disciples, if, you want to be, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. You can picture what it looks like to carry a cross back in that day and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. So this is like the initiative. Become my disciple, but make sure you understand what it's going to look like. And then we see Paul kind of playing this out at the end of Acts. Acts 20 should be the next one. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, eventually Rome, as captive. And now as captive of the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecution are waiting for me. So this is the Holy Spirit telling him this is what's going to happen as he leads him forward. But I do not count my life of any value to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. You know, and the third reason to show them that the power of God is given to those who trust God, not to those who everybody likes. You know, Jesus talks about this in John 5, 36. Thank you, Michael. But I have a testimony greater than John's. The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I'm doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. Jesus said it over and over and over. It's not me that is doing any of this, but it's just the Father working through me. It's God himself. So even if people reject me, it doesn't matter because God is the one doing what he does. You know, he tells the disciples to wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon them before they go out and start spreading the word. So, Three heavy things. We're going to look at them as application. But why would they do that? With so much weight behind their request, why did the disciples agree to go out alone? I think it comes down to John 6, 66 through 69. Peter gives a beautiful example here. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Giving them the choice. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, he gave them the option, but they continued to trust him and walk forward because they realized that Jesus brought something altogether different to the world. That he brought something that had so transfixed them and changed their lives in such a short period of time that they could not turn back from it. You know, let's roll into application. We'll go quick through this. But just like the disciples, the same is true for us. If you've made that decision to believe that the Bible is valid and the truth that it brings is, is really for us here and now, then you've made the decision to become a follower of Christ. When that happens after Christ's death and resurrection, it means that we receive the Spirit. That's the peace of the Trinity comes and somehow lives within us. And Jesus says that he will be your guide to truth. That he will show you how you are to act and what you are to do. Now, for those of us that have made that decision, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but inevitably God will call you into the unknown. The same way he did the disciples, which tends to be uncomfortable, even scary. This happens in a million ways, I'm sure. But moving quitting a job, giving away money, forgiving someone, treating someone like you like them, even though they hate you, telling someone you know well or somebody you've never met something really weird 
because God put it on your mind, getting baptized or publicly declaring your faith, standing in front of a group of people and say, I believe in Jesus, to stop drinking or smoking, to let your kids make their own decisions, right? It just comes one after another. He puts these things into our minds and onto our hearts that feel uncomfortable, that feel weird, even scary. So why does he do this? Just like the disciples who were men, just like we are people today, the same things apply. If you wouldn't mind putting all three of those up. He does this to show us that God is the only one that we can trust for everything, not the people or things around us. If you are honest with yourself, we trust money, our reputation, our knowledge and wisdom, our friends, our chosen pursuit of pleasure. We trust these things so often. And what Jesus seems to do through his spirit is tell us a way to pull out of those things that we trust so much. Whether that's giving away money, whether that's stopping to drink, whether that's no longer hanging out with the person that continually drags you down. He calls you to pull away. You know, I would love to spend some time having you all tell this, but because I'm the one speaking, I guess I got to give an example of how this rolls out. So when my wife and I, like five, six years ago, we were living in Hawaii, an amazing life, surfing like three times a week, awesome friends, good jobs, tan tan as you can be, no kids. It was just beautiful, (laughs) right? And at that point, God grabbed a hold of my life and in a very undeniable way told me I needed to move with my wife away from Hawaii to go study the Bible in North Carolina. So we had to leave our friends, our fun, our money. We obviously had to pay to go there and couldn't work while we did it. A beautiful life. My wife did not enjoy that experience, but we had to trust God in order to do it. And why did he do that? To teach us that he is the one that we need to trust for everything. You know, the second reason I think he does this for us, and this is different for everybody. I'm hoping you're thinking about things God's asked you to do. He wants to teach us that obeying God does not mean that your life will be easy. You know, we love being comfortable, don't we? We love it when our routine is set and life rolls the way that we want it and nothing out of the ordinary comes in. It's exactly the way we desire it to be. But by forcing us out of what is easy, we learn to trust. We no longer have the ability to simply skate through life when things get hard. The uncomfortable forces us to focus on who we genuinely trust. Do I trust myself? Do I trust my family? Do I trust my money when those things are for some reason gone? You know, another example, uh, most of you know that like uh, eight months ago, I got a traumatic brain injury. That means like holes in your brain and had difficulty um, thinking of simple words like a friend's name or um, the energy even to talk at times. Um, So the ability to communicate and my memory and vocabulary were really, really low. Um, but God just kept telling me, I want you to teach. I want you to teach. I'd been home like three days, and here I was sitting up in front of you guys talking for 30 minutes when my brain did not have the ability to do that. And who knows, maybe this was causing you all to rely on God instead of a, a teacher with an abused brain. I have no idea how it sounded, right? But... Month after month after month, God just continually forced me to pour into his word so that way I could pour it out. Would it have been easier for me just to sit at home and relax and play with my kids, go hiking? Of course. 
But God called me over and over to teach. Obeying God does not mean that your life will be easy. You know, and the third one, to show us that the power of God is given to those who trust God, not to those whom everyone likes. You know, often what God asks somebody to do is not only difficult, but it's illogical, which means that people around you, those whom you respect, may not agree with the decision that you're about to make. This requires us to choose God or our culture, our family, our advisors, our own logic, even family. It makes us choose. By being willing at times to ignore the counsel of those around you, we are able to more fully rely on God to accomplish things that make no sense that they should be accomplished. You know, there's there's so many stories about how this rolls out, but one happened to me just... um, not even a month ago, you know, I, and I don't know the byproduct of it, but we had a hail claim, totaled all of our roofs. I called a friend of mine who was a roofer, um, came in, um, filed it all, got a bunch of money from the insurance company, and with that was also a big chunk of money, like five grand that went to the general contractor, so that way they could make money while they did these things. And he was just doing my roof, and I was going to do everything else. But essentially, he said he needed that extra $5,000. And of course, that's illogical. It's like, heck no, why would I give you that money? It makes no sense to me. I would rather give the money away or go buy a nice car or do something, right, than give it to you. But then I heard God say, give him all the money. I'm like, heck no. A week later, praying again, give him all the money. A week and a half later, give him all the money. To the point where my wife and I both agreed, you know, it's God, not our logic, that we need to trust and we have no idea why we had to give him all the money. But give him all the money. You know, often the Spirit seems to tell us to do things that make no sense. Like Jesus' disciples going out and healing those who are possessed by demons. Really? How would that even be possible? But again, they're not called to trust their logic, but the power of God. So these three things are a heck of an incentive to be a follower of Jesus, right? They sound super fun, Right? <laughs> Don't worry about trusting your, your money or your fame or the people that like you for anything, right? Um, because it's not going to be easy. You're going to be called into all these hard things that are even illogical. So why do we do this? Why do followers of Jesus continue to do this? To carry this burden, and you know the street in Thailand or wherever he's at is full of crazy drivers on top of it. So why do we do this? Three words, because he is our creator, our savior, and our sustainer. He made you. He made me. We would not exist today in this moment had God not ordained life for us. He saved us. He desires to pull us back to our creator, redeem our relationship with him, so that way we can know by our creator the biggest thing ever that we are loved and directed, and he is our sustainer. No matter how hard things get, No matter what road he takes us down, he will give you love, joy, peace. These things come from him. And so where else can we turn? Can we turn to a world where we are in control? Because you know things are going to come in that we have no control over time and time again. And then we're just stuck trying to keep ourselves afloat. All right, so a wrap-up as we land this thing. Can you put up um, that picture that I have on there? I think it's the last one. 
uh, let's go that other one. Yeah, this one's a little bit more fitting. Thank you. So it's important to realize as a follower of Jesus, it's not just to follow wherever he goes, but to follow also means to accept as a guide or a leader. If you call yourself a Christian, it means you are a follower of Christ. And that means you have committed yourself to accept him as a guide or a leader. This has nothing to do with your salvation. I think you can be saved and not receive the abundant life, though. If we desire to be followers of Jesus, we must be willing to follow wherever he leads. Wherever he leads. He is our leader. He is our guide. We are his followers. Wherever he leads, we must be willing to go. And again, I don't think this has to do with your salvation. If you don't listen to him, you're not saved, not at all. But if you want the abundant life, if you want what's really good that God has come here to give you, you must be willing to follow him in the moment. You know, we're, uh, I talked too long and I apologize. Um, as we kind of wrap up with this last song, we have a chance to uh, take some communion. Now, biblically, communion has nothing to do with what church you go to at all. You don't have to be a member of this church. If you've never been here before, it doesn't matter. Biblically, it says if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have chosen to trust him on a regular basis, we are to take communion as a reminder of what Jesus did for us and for what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. You know, as Chris comes up and Sean and they play a little bit, I encourage you, if you desire, come up, grab a piece, dip it in, and as you're heading back, just ask God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do with my life? You are my leader. You are my guide. Without you, I have nothing. Direct me.